Welcome, ghouls, gals, and baddest days of the world. I am Cass Clark, and I'm joined by our lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley, and we have a special guest this week to talk all about cursed objects with us. Uh, John, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive in? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> no. Hi, everyone. I'm John Baltusberger. I'm a splatter punk Unstoker nominated author of several Jewish extreme horror books and splatter punk books. I'm also a publisher. I'm the head editor at Madness Heart Press and the Gotta Try It. Horror is pretty much everything I do. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, John. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Before we dive into our Cursed Objects history section, one quick note. Our section today mostly covers American films with some memorable K-horror and J-horror films that feature Cursed Objects as well, but is certainly not representative of the total and huge subgenre that Cursed Objects and horror represent. So if we missed any ones of yours that are your favorites that you would love for us to cover in the future, definitely let us know on our Twitter at horrorhangover underscore, and whatever you do, don't open that box beside you. So we're starting out with some, some real world shit. The tomb of King Tut built circa 1324 BCE, rediscovered by archaeologists in 1922, fired 1932's film The Mummy. Howard Carter, the lead archaeologist, found a medallion inscribed, death will come swiftly to those who disturb the tomb of the king. And a bunch of people involved died in like weird accidents. I don't mm. really think there's a connection to these things, but I think people were primed to believe it. But I'll get to that in a couple minutes. Then there's the Terracotta Army, built in 248 BCE discovered in 1974 by Chinese farmers. The Chinese government forced these farmers off their land to make the Terracotta Army into a tourist attraction, resulting in the death of many of the farmers. We're gonna skip ahead to some paintings. There's the crying boy in 50s England. One particular reproduction of this painting and it's said to have caused many fires and found on the site of many fires. Huh. Um, there's the Hands Resist Him, painted by Bill Stoneholm in 1972, and has supposedly had moving figures and caused chaos at night. But notice that all of these are coming 1920s, 1950s, because cursed objects have been a hit in literature since the 1890s. And I'd argue that the people seeing these things as curses and like attributing the deaths to them had a lot to do with the literature they were reading, the movies that are being made. On that note, I didn't go too far back with cursed objects. I think you could go infinitely back with cursed objects. But starting in 1891, there's the Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, published as a novella in 1890, and a full-form uh, novel in 1891. Robert Louis Stevenson, who uh, you all probably know from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, got in the action with the, the bottle imp. His cursed object was like, if you have this bottle, you're going to go to hell. So it wasn't like something that happened to you on the, the mortal plane. Followed by Robert W. Chambers, The King in Yellow. It's a four-story cursed object cycle. The whole collection is called The King in Yellow. But just the first four stories of the cursed object cycle, it's great. It totally bangs. Yeah. Um, what do you think works about it, just as someone who's not read it? I think it's like laid a lot of groundwork for Lovecraft's whole, uh, if you look at this, you'll go insane stuff. Hmm. A lot of that. Like cosmic I, horror, like some things aren't meant to be understood. The One of the great things about that story, that genre of story, yeah. is that, that it builds suspense in a way that I think Lovecraft really sucked at. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> like The King in Yellow, also known as uh, Hastur 
or Haster, although you're not supposed to say that. Is that <laughs> he like who the shall not bring the king? Hat and yellow? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're not supposed. To, yeah, <laughs> oh, we're you're supposed now. to say he, <laughs> he who shall not be named. But um, my boy Hastor. Also, I just want to mention that Hastor would destroy Voldemort in a punch out. Like for oh, for yeah. the for people who shouldn't be named, Hastor is the heavyweight. <laughs> uh, what what's cool about it though? Sometimes when you're engaging in a story in a movie, you see it and. You think, oh, this is tired. This is a trope. This is something I've encountered dozens of times. And then you have to remember like, oh yeah, because it comes from this. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I watched the uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari uh, yeah, the other yes. day. And it's it's great, great film. Uh, we saw it with a jazz. Um, <laughs> uh, like a company man? Yeah. And it works <laughs> like experimental nice. jazz works so well over the cabinet of dr caligari it's beautiful check that out we're watching and they're like oh man this is this is a thing we've seen many times and it's like yeah because they got it from this <laughs> and so a lot of times um when you're going into like 1920s and 1930s american pulp horror yeah lovecraft my boy howards um ashton clark smith you're seeing things and you're thinking like man this is so overdone is like that's true but it wasn't then and so it, it was revolutionary to have like bad guys who you couldn't shoot yeah. essentially yeah, you couldn't defeat yeah you know i'm happy to argue that the necronomicon and um i can't remember like they're all german names but like the book of cults and the book of the black king like all of these books and the yellow sign like american pulp yeah. horror of the 1930s pays huge tribute to the cursed object Mm-hmm. Usually yeah. cursed books because like that's how you part- encounter that. And it, it's funny because I I now that I'm saying that, I'm wondering like okay 1930s not really a time where we weren't aware of propaganda. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, the U.S. government was just starting to kind of push into okay how do we use propaganda yeah. uh, as a tool. And so I'm wondering if that had any effect on like, hey, knowledge will drive you insane. That permeates that 1930s horror. Yeah, I feel like in so some well. ways yeah. it has to because there's just that fear of either the fear of not receiving the message and getting or getting the wrong message about something or like not knowing what has already like tapped into you for lack of better words, which I think definitely connects to cursed yeah. objects. Because a lot of yeah. it is like the connections they make with you and the connections you make with them, knowing mm-hmm. or unknowing. So like. For sure. I'm sure uh, technological advances were probably also another factor because you had like telephones around them yeah. for the first time. You had right. radio. What's really guys- fascinating is the way cursed objects differ from culture to culture, though. So we're talking about American cursed objects at the moment. But if you yeah. go into generally speaking, American cursed objects follow very Western like fantasy style. Yeah. Thing. Like this is evil because someone put magic on it and now it's <laughs> evil or it's haunted. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you go to, say, uh, Japan, object could be cursed because some really negative event happened around it. Mm. That's the entire point of the grudge and the curse. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think it's really fascinating the way people have chosen to connect supernatural misfortune to things. After uh, The King in Yellow, we had uh, The Monkey's Pop by W.W. Jacobs in 1902 which I guess most of our listeners probably read. And like, I read it in seventh grade in my English class, which was dope. Mm-hmm. And then 1904, we had M.R. James dropping his first book, Ghost Stories of Antiquities. And he crushes some cursed object stories, including, oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, which holy shit, just like kind of reading the title scares me a little. 
<laughs> and so on and so forth, leading to, as John mentioned, like Lovecraft and Necronomicon and all these other cursed books. Mm. Um, so it's this burst of stories around the time when we're like finding King Tut's tomb and then people are dying after. I think that has more to do with it than anything else. It's just in I the mean, cultural consciousness. I mean, yeah. to be fair, 1930s, like part of the reason we found King Tut's tomb is because we still had a like, uh, mercenaries and bounty hunters looking for paint colors. I believe we were still eating mummies around then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we really enjoyed eating mummies. And also, we huh. enjoyed grinding mummies up to make brown paint. I believe it was brown. It may be ochre, like huh. yellowish paint. Okay. Part of the reason painting was such like a elevated thing is getting the different hues and getting the different like palettes and colors was not easy you had to go find that thing in nature and then crush it and make an oil mix yeah. it with oil and like animal fat and you had to create these colors and the mummies were real good for some of that stuff but we also had cocaine in our soda yes we yeah. had lots of lots of not really recreational drugs being used recreationally which i'm sure adds to uh the curse of just society in general oh, yeah. but also like it always cracks me up like oh hunter s thompson and william burroughs they did so many drugs while they're writing it's like yeah but if they had been alive like 30 years earlier they would that would just been like the norm <laughs> out of curiosity why did people eat mummies like was that like what was the supposed benefit? It was snake water, right? Uh, Although, like, if you're selling people bullshit anyway, just get some muddy river water and tell them it's mummies. <laughs> like, <laughs> damn. I haven't tried it yet, okay. but I assume there was a really nice texture. I mean, it's had a lot of time to age, so. <laughs> we, we don't, we don't do, we don't do, have you, have you guys ever had prosciutto? Yeah. No, I'm a vegetarian. So. I'm, yeah, I'm, um, I'm kosher, so I haven't had prosciutto in a very, very long time. It's, it has a really great texture, has a really yeah. rich flavor. Other than the formaldehyde, I assume mummies kind of power a similar <laughs> thing. Because are you a vegetarian for ethical reasons? Ethical and health. There are too many people. It's ethical to eat them. <laughs> uh, my friend Jonathan Swift wrote this really great article on it. I will forward it to you after the podcast. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Moving on, sir. Um, so <laughs> this podcast is now a cursed object. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. We're already fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of mummies, the first cursed object movie that I found, um, I'm sure there's some in the silent era where I'm not super knowledgeable about, The Mummy from 1932. 1945, The Dead of Night is a British anthology, had the first instance of a cursed ventriloquist doll. 48, there's The Red Shoes. It's an anthology with a, a ballet interpretation of cursed objects, which is pretty cool. It's, it's remade later on in 2005 in a Korean movie. Um, they're both adapting the same Hans Christian Andersen story. The remake is insane, like very bloody. And even the children aren't excused from the bloodiness, which I think is really cool and awesome. Uh, one film yeah. I did want to add in, we talked yeah. about this in our possession uh, podcast episode already, but The Night of the Demon, which oh, is also yeah. based off of an M.R. James story. My favorite Mario Bava movie, Black Sabbath, which is a great anthology, well worth a watch. So going from the 1970s onwards, there's an explosion of cursed objects in the 80s, tons of stuff in slashers, Freddy's mm -hmm. Gloves, Jason's Max, too much to really list. Very notable, 1981, Sam Raimi debuts with The Evil Dead, The Necronomicon. Yeah. Different book. Oh, shit, really? Yeah, it's the Necronomicon Ex Mortis. Um, <laughs> the book of dead names of death. <laughs> Super uh, dead book. <laughs> Super dead. So dead. 1983, we get Christine with the possessed haunted car. 85, we get The Stuff by Larry Cohen. I'm, I fucking love Larry Cohen. Um, 1986, we have Witchboard. 87, we have The Evil Dead 2, which is 
maybe a sequel, maybe a remake of Evil Dead 1. People argue about that. And in 1987, we also got to our first focus film, Hellraiser. Hellraiser is one of my favorite horror movies ever. I will mm-hmm. do my best to contain myself and not have my spirit leap out of my body <laughs> during this. Now, are you one of the heathens who says Hellraiser 1 is the best Hellraiser? I like to view Hellraiser 1 and 2 as a complete story and then just close my eyes and say nothing happened after that. Hellraiser 3 is the best Hellraiser. Okay. Yeah, tell me why. It's the most 90s movie I can imagine. Okay. So is it because the- you enjoyed watching it the most or is it because it's a better film? <laughs> Okay, no, it's not a better. And honestly, my wife and I rewatch all of the Hellraiser movies every year. I love those movies. I really do. It has great moments. Mm, And it has hysterical moments. Well, for (laughs) anyone that has not seen Hellraiser, a quick background information for it. It's based on Clive Barker's The Hellbound Heart novella, which, if you do read it, is way more sexual. But one thing that does translate well into the feature film adaptation is that at the end of the day, just as Clive Barker has intended, it's still a love story. Hellraiser is a love story, albeit a twisted one (laughs) that shows the obsessive lengths some people will go to when they fall for each other. And in this film, similar to the novella, we see just how far Julia, played by a marvelous Claire Higgins, will go to protect her lover Frank, who is played by a devilishly and thoroughly creepy Sean Chapman. In the film, like the novella, Julia is sick for her husband Larry. She thinks he's boring, too vanilla for her sexual appetites, and just starts getting it on with his brother Frank. A line from the novella that best describes just how much she despises her husband at this point in their relationship goes something like this. She wanted nothing that he could offer her, except perhaps his absence. In the film, Frank finds a puzzle box that's supposed to unlock unimaginable pleasures. He solves it, but is soon torn apart by the Cenobites it summons. Soon after that, Larry and Julia move into the same house where Frank died in the attic. A drop of blood is spilled on the attic floor and resurrects a skinless version of Frank, which Julia encounters. Julia realizes if she seduces men and then kills them upstairs for Frank to feed on, he can resurrect and become her lover once more. That is until a pissed-off stepdaughter named Christy figures out this weird-ass con and then all goes to hell and the Cenobites return for some vengeance. Now let's talk about how the feature film differs from the novella that inspired it. A couple of the key differences that I think are really important between the film and the novella is at the very beginning, Frank, who is a known degenerate, keeps pictures of beheaded prostitutes uh, that he killed in Vietnam. Terrible, terrible human being. In the book, he's not playing with a box. In the book, he's playing with his junk. As he opens the box and the Cenobites show up and the Cenobites are BDSM angel demons. Yeah, angels uh, to some, demons up. to others. <laughs> Ooh, Doug Bradley's voice. <laughs> angels to some, oh, he's demons so to others. <laughs> chains whip out of everywhere, rip Frank apart, and as these chains dig into him, he comes uncontrollably <laughs> and co- coats the attic floor in semen. Later on, when Julia cuts herself in the attic, her blood mixes with the dried semen, and that mm-hmm. is what brings Frank back. So Clyde Barker has talked many times about his inspiration around the Hellbound Heart and the screenplay that he would then pen later called Hellraiser. And what he always likes to say is he wanted to write a film 
and a story around good and evil, but have sex be the connective tissue. And it was very much inspired by his uh, own history as being a hustler in the 70s and by visiting S&M bars, especially. And one quote he says, which I think is just lovely, it was a celebration of the beauty of these strange secret rituals. One thing that I think is so interesting that doesn't quite happen in the film and the finished product is how much more like visceral he wanted not just the gore to be but also like the sexual scenes to be uh mm. and ryan told me a favorite tidbit would you like to yeah. tell me so i was listening to the director's commentary and apparently for the the first sex scene with frank and julia they had uh three thrusts and three the mpa told them that two butt thrusts was appropriate for a rated r movie during sex three butt thrusts too many, too, too sexual. <laughs> we could not show this to people over 17. Yeah, and there was I... also supposed to be anal sex in there that got cut. Frank loves anal sex. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if his desire to put anal sex in the movie was about anal sex is great, or if it was more about this is a thing that people view as repugnant. I think it was both, to be honest. I think that- That is his, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. why I, I, th- I kind of lean on that where it's like, I think- he wanted it as an expression of sex that is dope and also wanted to see how much he could show it in a horror movie to see how people would react to it. I think he's very provocative in that way, which I love. I'll, I'll say Clive Barker is my biggest influence as a writer. He's one of the original splatterpunks, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is a, a genre that I'm firmly rooted in. When I think about it, really, like Clive Barker had the biggest influence on me and the stories I wanted to tell. But again, I digress. <laughs> There's a box. There's a box, the lame configuration, yes. the puzzle box, the cursed objects, so- supposed to unlock the best of pain and pleasure beyond imagination. So one question I did have for both of y'all is how clever do we really think this puzzle box is? Because in the film, it's put up as like, oh, it's a really hard box to figure out. But it seems actually very easy for people to it's, open these it's boxes. <laughs> It's not the hands that call them, it's the heart. Mm. But more serious answer, what's interesting about the box though is I don't think it's difficult at all. I think it may be impossible to open if you're not interested in further Mm. exploration. Although people do occasionally accidentally open it. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, when someone opens the box, either they completely intend to, you see Christy just like, oh no, I need to do this. Here you go. It really looks like you got to rub the box's nipples. It's very titillating. Like it's a push up twist. It's done. And the bo- honestly, the box can do that itself. It does often. Yeah. One of the cool things about the box too is the demon that carts it around and sells it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, portrayed by an old homeless man in almost every thing, but it's also maybe a terrifying undead dragon monster. Yep. Um, yeah. Shapeshifter. <laughs> it's this creature whose job is both to guard the box from harm and also deliver it to the next sicko who wants to get torn apart in an attic while masturbating. So what do you think, like, Ryan? I've been like thinking about it a bunch, and I think cursed objects kind of have three parts. One is like the object itself. Two is the trigger. Three is the thing it's connected to. The thing it's connected to is almost always the scary thing. And so the other two don't matter. And I wish people would play with that more. I keep thinking like, what would be like the worst thing to be a cursed object? Because there's gotta be like, yeah, like a butt plug. You have a cursed butt plug and you put it in, boom, here's the Hellraiser demon. On that point though, uh, the one ring. Yeah. Absolutely a cursed object. And all the rings are cursed, right? Yeah, uh, they bear the curse of like, if you put this one, if you're a man, you become a ring wraith eventually. Uh, but all the other like, you are forced to obey whoever holds the one ring. 
And if you're not Sauron and you put on the one ring, he can see you. The ring wraiths can find you. Um, you can't see yourself in the mirror anymore. Cut yourself shaving, probably. I don't know. Uh, and then the the end result is you end up turning into a thing like a golem. Yeah. So, like, curse objects are not solely the purview of horror. Yeah. But, and this is a, this is a really interesting thing. I'd love to get y'all's opinion on this. Mm-hmm. I think every genre has horror in it. Absolutely. I don't think you can make good media without elements at least adjacent to horror. I feel like everything is actually a little bit of horror. I feel like any film you could find you can find the horror in it. And I think everything is basically a horror film. Like drama mm-hmm. is horror. It's tension. It's yeah, conflict. Tension. Yeah. If you don't have tension and conflict, you have bullshit um yeah the only thing i can think of maybe rom-coms don't have horror i don't even know yeah. if we'd well like isn't I mean, cringe they comedy are horrific <laughs> kind of just their existence is, is horrifying <laughs> I don't um love them. I'm, I'm writing a book right now on on the type of media and horror's influence on that media and the more i think about it and write about it the more i realize like well i can literally twist any aspect of this media and say like well here's the horror in this no matter what you're doing if there's conflict if there's drama there's an aspect of horror and so thanks to boomer culture we have those shitty like ah my terrible wife jokes for most of that generation it's like oh wedding rings are cursed moments are cursed items Mm. And like jokes aside, like if you're in an unhappy relationship, if you're in an unhappy marriage, it absolutely is. Yeah. And the point I'm making there is just that like with our own emotional weight that we attach to objects, curses are kind of made manifest. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And good horror films amplify that, maybe add a supernatural element to it, but it should, in my opinion, be rooted in the fact that like, what's causing the curse is our own hubris or our own uh, inability to move on. Yeah. Hellraiser is one of those horror movies that like, if you just took out all the horror elements, you have like a very good emotional dynamic. You could make any kind of movie with those four characters would be good. You could make an Oscar bait if you wanted to. I really like, I mean, I totally agree. But I also really like how the horror is used, especially with Julia, which we haven't talked too, too much about. Because I think that she's just like the unsung villain of honestly the whole franchise and it's a shame that the the actor claire higgins jumped ship after two because i would have loved to just she was great forever uh because she i think really she did a great job as an a, actress she, and a character yeah mm-hmm. she's a she's a trained stage like shakespearean actor i would find myself rooting for her even when i know that she's bringing these like sleazy stupid dudes up to like the bedroom to like seduce them when it really is to feed them to her ex undead lover <laughs> for him to resurrect. I loved that concept. I thought it was great. And a fun fact about the resurrection of Frank, in order to get those details right for the screen, Clive Barker attended an autopsy to make sure that the skin and the muscles looked as realistic as possible. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Man, yeah. can we take a moment to say like practical effects in Hellraiser? Oh, yeah. Holy shit, they're so good. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's funny because I, I, I actually don't mind CG at all. When I'm watching them film, I'm going to go back to a pretty bad movie, actually. Uh, the Hulk. Uh, the Incredible Hulk with uh, Edward Norton. Yeah. Uh, people were livid about the CGI in that film. I didn't mind. I didn't care. I'm in a movie about a guy that turns green. Like, I can suspend my my disbelief. But I don't think CGI ever creates those iconic characters the way 
Doug Bradley's Pinhead, Robert England's Freddy, yeah. all the Jasons. Those practical effects and makeup create the nightmares that we're still talking about to this day, kind of in awe. Yeah. Even Pumpkinhead. Yeah. Like, yeah. holy shit. That's, that's great. That's rubber. Yep. God damn. Other people other than me have said this before, but 87, like that was the height of people really pushing the boundary of special effects because this was pre-CGI. CGI came out mm-hmm. in the 90s and then from there, people just got obsessed with this new technology and didn't always go back to using practical effects. So a thousand percent want to sing this movie's praises for how just inventive oh, yeah. it is. I feel though that that kind of leads us to one of the worst cursed objects of kind of the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, which one? What is the worst one? film. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> Just, it, it's so funny. We'll, whenever my wife and I watch you know, something. like Jaws 3D? Just like, <laughs> like, this is filmed in 3D, huh? Because it's like, oh, things keep coming like, at you. If you wear glasses, right? You go to a 3D movie. Oh, I you hate it. You have to put the stupid fucking 3D glasses over your regular glasses. You know, just I'm doing that after COVID. Yeah. <laughs> More fun fact, Pinhead doesn't get named until after Hellraiser. He's just the lead yeah. Venom bite in the in the first film. And we'll be talking to you. And he's like, and then we were, we're in the middle of filming. And uh, I had to say, no tears, child. It is a waste of good suffering. And like my panties drop when his voice does. Yeah. Yeah. He almost didn't get the role of the lead Venom bite. He was offered that role or the mover guy who moves the mattress up to the attic where Frank resurrects. And almost was that man instead. So just imagine how the entire franchise would have been totally different if we have not well, heard he's completely velvet not voice. right for the role if you're going from the novella. Yeah. yeah. And also, if you look at, if you just look at Doug Bradley, you don't think this is a angel of sex. <laughs> you just don't. I love you, Doug Bradley, but you don't like seeing you walking down the street. I would have been like, oh yeah. That's, that's the Chris Angel of fucking. Well, before we go into Amulet, do you have any other Hellraiser thoughts that we want to bring up? I have like one or two other pieces of trivia. Trivia yeah. one, I'm not related to Doug Bradley. Eric, great <laughs> to inform you all. I'm um, signing off this call. This is bullshit. I was sold to <laughs> brought here on false pretenses. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, they're kind of come up with a better name for Hellraiser in the South because they were worried people in the South wouldn't see a movie with hell in the title. And Clive Barker isn't sure who, but someone in the production team suggested what a woman will do for a good fuck. <laughs> I mean, look, I'd watch that. It's accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what's funny about that is it plays into the rom-com of like Mel Gibson's yeah. What Women Want. <laughs> Only instead of Mel Gibson, it's a fucking pinhead. I don't know if you've read the Scarlet Gospels. That book is also a cursed mm-hmm. object. It's the close of the Cenobite story it's the last big novel that clive barker wrote every time someone calls pinhead uh pinhead pinhead they die horribly he hates that he's literally just like the hell priest and in various comics he's also like the high priest of hell or the abbot of hell Hmm, Mm. i like that the abbot of hell although in scarlet gospels he is not an abbot he is just like a everyday priest which is like how much shit do you have to fuck up on earth before they give you a promotion in <sighs> hell catholicism yeah the question <laughs> only only doug bradley knows you gotta That's tell true. those soulful eyes <laughs> hellraiser 3 was the first 
kind of horror I ever saw. I was like five <laughs> wow. or six years old, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I was hanging out in my friend's basement, just flipping channels. And there's like, in my opinion, like one great scene in Hellraiser 3. It's when Pinhead comes out in that room full of candles. And he just has this speech about like how uh, the noise of like your friends crying is like a violin on a razor blade. And it's like the best music in the world for him. I saw that scene at like five years old and I was terrified of Pinhead for the next 10 years. Best scene in Hellraiser 3 is when he turns the DJ into the... a CD headed Cenobite who launches seed, like killer CDs at people. <laughs> right. Out of his mouth, right? Yeah, it's, it's oh, man. fucking 90s rancid and it's amazing. <laughs> so, so moving on from Hellraiser, um, there's three movies from 87 to 89 that all have haunted dolls. Maybe not quite cursed objects, but kind of the follow-up to the, uh, the Dead of Night. But uh, we have Dolls in 87, Child's Play in 88, 89, we have Puppet Master. Ooh, um, okay. Sometimes there's just like something floating in the air and just everyone makes something of it. Um, 93, Guillermo del Toro makes his first feature, Kronos, which is great, has a cursed objects in it. What about Ma- um, yeah. another Clive Barker joint? What about the gem from Wishmaster? Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah. think that, that would count for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Monkey Paw-esque vibes, I would yeah. say, yeah. Yeah, 98, we get Ringu from Japan, which kind of takes curse technology with the curse boutique into like more technology stuff. I really think they did a great job with the idea of that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I saw that movie in college when I was still living in a dorm. Yeah. And I'm not saying I did drugs in college, but <laughs> I am saying I turned my computer monitor onto its like monitor when i went to bed for a few nights <laughs> oh you have to yeah i think that the seven days thing in the ring is one of the most just excellent displays of horror ever so i feel like if you saw that opening night you have seven days where you're saying like oh it can't be real mm-hmm. is it real i can't be is it you're stuck in that until seven days yeah. pass and you're not dead i don't know if this fits in the category but now i'm thinking that 2001's pulse which is another j horror film might oh, also yeah. it's it's weird because it definitely is an idea of a cursed objects, but the it's the idea that's the curse. Like once you yeah once you have that idea in your brain, it then exists like- in a physical space, and then it kind of catches on like a contagion, and you can't like unsee it. I think that's a, it's a curse, but it's not a cursed object, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because because you could also say like oh a cursed disease like the zombie plague. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's one of these things where it's like it is in the same mega genre. Yeah. But kind of a separate thing. Uh, for instance, Pontypole. Ooh, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's contagion. It's yeah. contagion, but it's not like, it's obviously not natural. But is it a neurovirus? Is it supernatural? Is it, there's a lot of movies in the vein of like Bye Bye Man, Slender Man. Mm. Um, uh, creepypastas hit this all the time where oh, it's yeah. like, oh, once you know about it, then you're doomed. And by trying to fight it or get away from it, you expose others. Mm. 2002, there's a remake of The Ring by Gore Verbinski. I think it's one of the few American remakes of a foreign movie that's actually better. I think the central mystery is played better. Mm. And I like that there's no like psychic explanation for it. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I guess, I, look, the only reason I'm going to disagree with you is because yeah. I didn't understand anything in The Ring. I love when I don't know the backstory. For the most, Edward Lee <laughs> recommended a movie to me, and I watched the movie. It was not great, and the only reason I watched it was so I could figure out why any of this was happening. 
and it ended without telling me any of it. And while I really, really enjoy that in most movies, this one was just like, I just wasted two hours watching your bullshit to figure out why the bullshit was happening. Go fuck yourself. What movie was it? If I say it's same, it gains power. Yeah. Okay. It's the contagion factor. We don't want it to it spread. Yes. <laughs> Unlike anyone in any of those movies, I'm a good friend and I'm not going to <laughs> infect you guys. There's a couple ones we already mentioned. The Grudge, Red Shoes, the American remake of The Grudge, which the Japanese version is definitely better out of those two. I think the whole series, I think the whole Grudge series from Japan is great. Yeah. Um, there's also Norai the Curse, which is also phenomenal. Uh, 2007, Dead Silence, which Cass and I have talked about here before, we both like. 2012, Possession, was a cursed object with a fuck Jewish twist. Film. Fuck No, fuck you. Fuck that film. I um, want to hear why. Okay, you. yeah, why? Let's go so, into it. So it's Hanukkah right now. It's the last night of Hanukkah. I'm Jewish. I write Jewish horror. That's like yeah. my, that's, uh, I've worked really hard to establish myself in that subgenre. If you see on Facebook in like any of the horror book groups, if someone says, does anyone have any Jewish horror suggestions? My name comes up a lot. Quite a pride. The other two things that come up are The Possession and The Vigil. The Vigil is an amazing Jewish mm -hmm. horror film. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it ASAP. It's incredible. The Possession, on the other hand, featuring a Dybbuk box, a Dybbuk being a word for a Jewish spirit, a Dybbuk box being a uh, way to trap that spirit, is a Catholic horror demon movie where they said, hey, instead of having a priest here, let's throw a rabbi in. Ah. Fuck that. There's, that's, not how, that's not how Jewish exorcisms work. That's not how Jewish ghosts work. That's not really how Jewish demons work. They got nothing about like Jewish horror and Jewish mysticism, yeah. right? And it's a shit movie for that reason. And it pisses me off. That is a cursed object though. I will give it that. But the movie is also cursed. Fuck it. Yeah. It's not a Jewish film. Well, in that vein, are there, I mean, I feel like you probably ask this all the time. So please roll your eyes at me if you don't want to answer. <laughs> but are there specific Jewish horror movies or even books that are at the front of your mind that you would love to mention too for our listeners? So again, The Vigil. Um, yeah. The Vigil is the first one I'm going to mention every time because they get almost everything right. Hmm. It's almost hard for me to, to think around The Vigil. As far as books go, there's not a lot, and, and the reason is really distressing. A few years back, I wrote a Jewish urban fantasy horror novel, and I started shopping it around, and no one was interested. And basically what I was told over and over again is like, well, no, we want like Jewish studies or Holocaust studies or like a quirky comedy about your life being Jewish. And like, mm -hmm. that's all anyone wanted to publish. So I started an imprint called A Gotta Try It for Jewish speculative fiction. Horror, sci-fi, fantasy. Bizarro 2, uh, we're publishing a book by Max Bauman soon mm, uh, called nice. The Giant Robots of Mesopotamia. <laughs> giant Robo giant, sorry, Giant title. Robots of Babel, which is about uh, Mecca in Mesopotamia. It's going to be great. Max Bauman's amazing. So we're just now starting to do it. And I, I hate to say it, I don't like just tooting my own horn all that much. I became a publisher so I could promote other people, mm. but I have five or six Jewish horror books out now. Blood and Mud, War of Dictates, Trafe Magic, Son of the Right Hand, uh, the Stabberger series, which is those just about a Jewish guy murdering Nazis. That's all it is. Fantastic. You can get those on Godless. 
Um, they're 50 cents each. So like Splurge. I enjoyed both of them a lot. Thank you. Third one's coming out in January. Nice. So there's that. We also just published a book called The Jewish Book of Horror. When I say we, I mean uh, uh, the Denver Horror Collective put out an anthology and I'm in it. Uh, I put out an anthology called Of the Book, which is Jewish folk horror. And it's the book that made me realize like I should just start a press or an imprint mm-hmm. for this. And there's another book. It's not it's not specifically Jewish, but I have a Jewish story in it. It's called Antifa Splatterpunk. Hmm. And if your sentiments lean more towards being angry at fascists, I highly recommend that book. And if you're if you if you kind of go the other way where you're like, well, at least you're not communist, I'd rather be fascist than communist, then you don't want to read anything I've written. That said, it's a good question, Cass. There's a lot of great stuff out there, and there's a lot of cool folklore and folk stories. Mm-hmm. One thing you could do is just go to the religious studies section of a used bookstore, mm-hmm. look in the Jewish section, and then look for fiction in that section. Mm-hmm. Um, or folk tales, legends, myths, that sort of thing, because they're cool. Or look for indie presses like mine. Uh, I gotta nice. try it. I have a fantasy book by Jillian Pollock out. I have the two Jewish urban fantasy horror things out. And like I said, we're doing bizarre. We're trying to do more and more. Uh, indie horror is really the place where you're going to find Jewish horror thriving. Excellent. Well, we're glad to hear it and I'm glad to share yeah. it. So please keep us updated on things. We'd love to promote whatever you have coming out because that's a damn shame. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, let's make some change. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's the problem with Jewish media for both of your information is that it's mostly Christians or at least non-Jews writing it. My editor, Lisa Tone, best editor in the business. She's Christian and you know, she's, she loves editing my stuff and we have really in-depth theological discussions. And the other day she's like, Oh, I have a friend who's writing about a golem. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, huh? Oh, it's about some Jews. I'm yep. Do some of the golem. Yep. Lisa, do they fight Nazis with the golem? Yeah, they do. (gasps) Anytime you see Christians writing Jewish stuff, it's like, okay, well, it's obviously the golem because this culture that's been around for 6,000 years only has the one story. (laughs) Um, One monster to pick from. (laughs) Yeah, one monster to pick from and only one foe, despite despite centuries of uh, being ostracized and driven out of countries. Just just Nazis. So I'm not bitter at all, by the way. Um, (laughs) Most people only know what people who aren't Jewish write about Jewish faith and uh, Jewish belief. And I could, I could fill like three hours of a podcast just about this topic because um, a lot of people consider Jews to be like uh, Christians, 0.1, like pre-Christians, mm-hmm. beta beta or alpha christians and it's like no we're a completely different religion and faith like jews find the term judeo-christian to be incredibly offensive we're not related to christianity even if you look at uh jewish bible which christian would call the old testament it's arranged and translated differently we're not using the same book even and so it, it's really frustrating when people are like oh you know Jewish, Christian, Muslim, it's all the same religion with different, probably, no, we're like three vastly different faiths, cultures, and communities. And 
I think it is demeaning to everyone if if you try to lump them together. And also the Bible could probably be like people could make a pretty strong case for the Bible itself being a cursed object. Speaking of the Bible, the next cursed object that we have is The Conjuring from 2013, um, which launched a series full of cursed objects. Mm-hmm. Also yeah. problematic as hell. Um, <laughs> yeah, we uh, talked about that I a bunch of times. Ed and Lorraine Warren are probably cursed objects. Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah. They're dead. Their skulls can be cursed objects. Okay, sorry. Ugh. Hucksters. Then, Don't get uh, me started. <laughs> mm-hmm. In 2014, we had uh, the Baba Duke, which kind of oh. led to a huge jump in popularity for more artsy horror. Uh, one last minute addition to the list is The yeah. Advent Calendar, which I just watched. It's a French film that just hit Shutter on December 2nd. And it's, as the title suggests, it's all about this ancient German advent calendar that arrives at someone's doorstep and each day a different treat comes out and when this main character Eva eats a treat something horrific happens to someone else and she's gifted with something good so Hmm. it goes ranges the the gambit from like there's a heart candy and the the dude she's been eyeing asks her out to coffee to like there's one candy where she eats it and her Alzheimer's father remembers her for the first time in a decade and calls her but it's like only for that day so it's I think it's worth mentioning just because it really leans into how like how did like the candies work, what their rules are, mm. how the monster comes and goes. So I definitely recommend and check it out. There are many like you, Thomas, who seek refuge here. Amulet, which was originally written as Outside, is our, our second feature. It's an indie pick too. Um, it debuted at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Written and directed by performer Ramala Gray. Gray started her career as an actress, most family starring in Atonement, which could have been another name for this movie. Tells the story of Tomas. He's a soldier, played by Alex Sekerno, um, who immigrates to England after a war in, I believe it's in Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, we get his story in two parts. We have one story in England. After a fire, he gets invited by a woman dressed as a nun, Imelda Staunton, uh, playing Sister Claire to help Magda, played by Carla Jury, uh, providing end-of-life care for her mother, played by Anna Rudden. Meanwhile, in dreams, he's dreaming of a past where he had like a very cush um, deployment in the war, where he's kind of just guarding an empty forest until a woman named Miriam, played by Angeliki Papula, shows up and he and her have uh, some stuff that goes on. Mm-hmm. Cass, how did you like the movie? We're now definitely entering into spoiler territory. So we're going to enter into spoiler territory. Yes. <laughs> cannot talk about it Anyone, without Anyone uh, listening who doesn't want to go watch shit. the movie, come back. <laughs> the second it ended, I immediately texted Ryan. So I was just like, what? <laughs> it's so good. And it was going in a way that at first I was getting really, 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 really mad because the main character, Tomas, runs into this woman who's like in need of shelter and hiding from the war and ends up raping her brutally. And that is his like past that's been haunting him. And she that out with like 30 seconds left in the movie. Yeah, but it's, it's been heavily coded. I think especially if you're viewing yeah. it from like like a woman or like a signed female at birth lens, like you can, you see it and you know where it's going. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, it's gonna be one of these stories. And for a long time, it seems like it's on a path of redemption. Like Tomas is being guided by this nun and gets this like free living situation and job and all his meals are prepared for. And he even like ends up falling in lust with the woman he's living with. It seems like he's ready to start a new chapter in his life. And then there's such a a pivot and we realize not the case at all. And it then has another amazing pivot at the end 
this entire time, there's been no redemption. There's not been any plan to save Tomas. He's been on a path to like hell, but also guided by this maternal mythic creation that is like the protector of all women and is sentencing him basically to be the physical vessel for evil. It seems like every lunar cycle, this man will have to give birth to a bat child. Alien style. I saw it as through his penis. Like that did not come out of his belly. Because you always see it bleeding from his crotch. And I think it's like also a huge important detail too, because he's experiencing brutal violence. And we see that and we see him suffer something, but we'd never see the actual rape of the woman on screen. Those two choices were so smart and so good because we can imagine a whole bunch. And then it's also, there's just catharsis level. What would be the best way to punish someone who raped and then who also has certain moments in the film where you can see him have this like predator eye towards other women. And like, it seems like he's not seeking atonement. He very much is who he is. And he's just acting as if he's not. And he can't even say what he did. Well, I guess forcing a man to give birth would be pretty okay. (laughs) Those bat things are pretty big. Yes. That's that's not going to fit in that. That's your takeaway. <laughs> no, I think Cass makes all the good points. I don't know, like what I as a, a dude have to say that would add to that. Well, let's talk about the cursed object because I just yes. kind of went all around that. <laughs> so uh, the cursed object, and it might be a blessed object too. Um, oh, I in like this particular that. context. Let me ask you this about that then: a cursed object affects anyone who comes in contact with it, right? Hmm. I think like, at least with the lament box, you have to have that trigger. So you have to solve the lament box rather than just... You do. Um, That's true. But if you solve it, no matter what you were supposed to do, Cenobites come into dance. With the notable exception, if you are truly innocent, they they won't. But my point is, is that having not seen Amulet, if someone else got a hold of this thing, would they be cursed whether or not they were a predator? I feel like the whole point of this is that's a great question, John, too, because now I was just thinking like as a, as a sidebar, something that we hadn't really talked about too much, but is totally in your question there is like, not every cursed object has the same rules. Like I immediately thought of, you know, that Mm -hmm. scene in the cabin in the woods where they go into the basement there's all these objects and they're, they all have a certain kind of invitation or like the person holding the object has to interact with it in a certain way, like these rule sets with it, right? But then some other cursed objects don't have that. It's just by touch or accepting it. Like in Night of the Demon, it's just accepting a scroll. That's all it takes, picking up a paper, not knowing anything. So I think that in this film, what we're led to believe that supremely evil people, I guess, have no moral conscience, is maybe a better way to put it, will run across this amulet. And if they take it, it seems like they're then damned. So like, feels like the amulet is traveling and finding the people, sort of a gamble of free will, but it seems like they're all pretty much damned. Yeah, it seems like the, the nun character, who's not really a nun, tells him near the end, like, you had every chance to, to get away. But at the beginning, when he digs up the amulet, there's no clue as to like, why did he take that shovel into the wood and start digging in that particular spot? We don't really mm. get a clue toward it. Um, he hasn't, well, he hasn't done anything that we know of, of. at that point either. Um, which is another interesting point, like, did it know he was going to do that and then come into his life? So the way that the narrative plays out, okay, so there's present day, we have flashbacks into the past, but it's not the past past, it's like a, a certain time, like the past present, and then it goes back to the actual past and tells his 
pass in a linear fashion. So when I first saw him picking up the, the amulet from like digging it, in my mind, I don't think at that point in time he met that woman yet. The rape didn't happen. But for me as a viewer, since this is the first thing I'm seeing, I automatically thought like he killed someone and, but we don't know. I feel like we don't know what happened before that. So that's how I read it. Because it does make me wonder, like, so say if the amulet comes to him before he's done the thing, Uh does the the thing, the shell woman, the shell goddess have the power to stop him? Magda, that's what. Magda. Yeah, Yeah. because it is Magda. Yeah. So the shell god seems to be like, not a thing of protection, but a thing of vengeance. Yeah. If he did pick it up before, it could have, I think you were saying like it happened almost in Medius Res where we saw like the middle scene with him digging it up before he goes to England and then the whole story in the woods happens after that. Yeah, that's how I figured it out um, because of his facial hair. Like he has a full beard and like when you first see him meeting the woman for the first time, he doesn't have a beard. So I'm just like, well, unless you have very, I don't know, impressive beard skills. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I was watching uh, Forged in Fire the other day because I'm a dad. And that's what we do. The guy, clean shaven in the first two days, goes home to forge his thing. Four days later, comes out, has a immaculate mustache and goatee. So it is possible. Yeah, I mean, he could have. I shaved this yeah. morning. I was going to ask you, you have a very nice beard. How long did it take you to grow it? One day I just stopped shaving. And I don't know when it got to look good, but. <laughs> so, uh. There's a beard in the movie too, on um, the the woman upstairs. Cursed? It's not a curse. Well, it's not really a woman upstairs either, I guess. It is not. Nope. But that's one of the movie's twists. Yeah. You think it's the old lady the whole time. So the only but it's way. It's just a dude giving birth to bats through his penis. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Which is Sounds hot. so fucking good. Um, oh yeah, it's such that's... a deserved punishment too. It seems like it fits the crime. I think that's why I landed on. Like, you know what? Yes, but also honestly in the last like 10 minutes of the film we find out the real identity of this person and this informs why and how we know how magda the amulet also spirit works is because we find a newspaper clipping in the attic that has this little passage saying that there used to be a man that lived in this house who killed his wife after trying to molest his daughter and then ended up killing the daughter too goes missing basically and that's the only other background that we know about people who've also been cursed by magda so it it made me think i'm like wow that's real bad that's real bad so it also kind of makes me think that tomas might have had many other sins in the past that we just don't know about because to be on that level like (laughs) damn absolutely yeah the thing i love most with this movie is you're just so off balance it's an hour and 40 minutes long there's just 90 minutes where i was i think even the second time watching i was like i would have a better idea it still feels very off balance Um, Because it's just fucking with you in so many visual ways. And it's like playing with your assumptions. Like you see uh, Sister Claire dressed in a nun's garb. You see her dressed in a a habit. And you just assume like, oh, yeah, she's wearing a habit. That's that's really a nun. And she says some shit and she's smoking cigarettes. And you're like, oh, she's like a really progressive nun. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the same thing with the, the mother upstairs. But you don't even see the mother for the first hour 15 you yeah. see like the bite mark she leaves on Magda, but not really, really the rest. Yeah. I like there's just one scene with the nun where it's maybe within the first act where, you're, where you kind of get tipped off that something's off. The building he's staying in is like set on fire. Yeah. And then the, the nun appears to, to save him. And it's like, I got this situation for you so you can like make a new life here. Yada, yada. And Tomas is like, okay, that's great. 
thank you for like collecting my things, but I had this big wad of money. <laughs> Where's my money? And she's like, I didn't see any money. And then yeah. like a scene later, she's smoking a cigarette and she just dumps like a whole roll of what looks like to be money. He's been saving for quite a while into the dumpster. And you're like, there's no motivation or reason to throw out that money for this person you're supposedly helping. And there's really cool scenes with Magda too, where sometimes she'll just, dub- she'll have these lines that are such great double entendres uh, where she'll just say things like, that's like what you really want, isn't it? When she's feeding him dinner, like stew, she'll like pay a lot of attention to his hunger. And in a way that's very like off kilter and how she's delivering the lines. Really good at that where you're like, you're not quite sure what's happening, but there's enough clues to where all the reveals I think make sense and do hold up. Yeah, I think that's what makes the film so impressive. Those last 10 minutes where everything's revealed, it's just like every moment you're just like screaming, holy shit, which is like (laughs) louder. Do you think yeah. that there's something in the food? Cause she wasn't eating that helped him give penal birth to the bats. So I was thinking about this a lot because at first I thought that Magda was mutilating her mom and putting in like a human stew, bringing back our theme of uh, cannibalism uh, this episode. <laughs> like I really did think I, <laughs> I was like, cause there, she's just being so weird about him eating the stew that I'm like, oh, okay. It must be human or something. It has to be something weird. And the mother's locked up. You don't see her for like almost the entire film. So I'm like, that has to be it. Right. So what I think it is those bat babies. I think that she cooked and put in some of the bat babies in the stew uh, for like the meat. Cause we never see her buy meat. We only see her buy fish. Yeah. So that was kind of my assumption. Cause she does say like he is ripe and he's been ready for a while and which is even grosser. <laughs> yeah. Like I think any regular person goes upstairs, sees the condition the mother is, goes to some kind of elder abuse hotline, right? Like, I don't know what the equivalent would be to like what we have in America and England. I'm, I'm assuming they have some kind of like organization in charge of stopping elder abuse. Yeah. Also, right? I mean, yes. And also there is nothing that looked mortal about that mother like even no. the most decrepit like decrepit like illnesses like her eyes were like going like white like all like yeah. all white like not like cataracts like all white and her all her fingernails were just black but it wasn't just like oh her she has dirty fingernails because she's been kept up in the act it was like her nails were turning into claws like she looked like, like yeah. a raven or some shit yeah i had one other straight observation just about him why the fuck does he not wear gloves or a face mask? Like he's like chipping away at mold on the ceiling, just like breathing it in. And he goes into that fucking toilet. He just put the bleach in the uh, toilet. Uh. And he's like, there's a thing that was killed by the bleach in it. He just touches it with his bare hands. Wear a glove, dude. Yeah, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> well, he got what he deserved. And in the end he of the day, did. Uh, what was really nice about the film too is the, the woman, uh, Miriam, we get to see where she ended up and she's, you know, figuring shit out, but has reunited with her daughter and has a stable job and gets a visitation by Magna. And there's just like very cute, like almost like tip of the hat moment. That totem was present around the same time that the rape happened. And it's just such a specific looking statue that we can't not think that Miriam saw that and didn't think that it was the same one. Yeah, I think she leaves it for Miriam, right? She leaves it for her and she looks at it and smiles. And that I thought was so important. I like that a lot. I feel like it would be too on the nose if Miriam knew exactly what happened to him. Yeah. I feel like it's just like the right amount. Like she knows he got fucked for what he did, 
but doesn't know exactly how. Because I think even just explaining the details would be. Perhaps the best moment is afterwards. She so she buys like ragu. That's like this like like box ragu. And Miriam's like, are you sure you want that, miss? Like I wouldn't feed that to like my like dog or cow or something. And she's pig. Oh, pig. She says which, pig, yeah. Yeah, which really pig. seals a deal for Magda. And she was just like, no, I fucking hate cooking. And just like throws it to Tomas now, like being under this blanket and like huddled up and like not dying, but, but now apparently like evil immortal. And that was great too. Just to see him suffering and to be like fed again. And that like, I guess that metaphor coming back of being satiated, but suffering for that. <laughs> yeah, so we watched it. I think oh. it was a great movie. Any final thoughts on Amulet? Mm. Go see it and then you can listen to me flailing verbally because <laughs> I feel have so many good feelings for this movie. Oh yeah, we should also talk about the special effects of Amulet. There's, there was yeah. some CG at the end especially, but up till then it was just all practical and it was all very gross. Like nothing I would want to touch or taste in that film. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very gooey and tactile. That is our last film of the Cursed Objects discussion. Is there anything, Ryan and John, that you want to bring up? I got nothing else to add as far as Cursed Objects go. John, what do you have cooking in January? I've already mentioned on the episode, if you haven't paused and gone to buy them, go to godless.com and look up the crimes and passions of John Stadberger. Uh, Issue three dropped earlier on January 1st specifically which is pretty bonkers. Uh, my new book, Abhorrent Faith, is coming out from uh, St. Rooster. It is a concurrent sequel to Abhorrent Siren, meaning it happens at the, the exact same time as the first book. To give you some idea of what you're in store for, uh, midway through writing Abhorrent Faith, someone tried to burn down my synagogue. Mm. So there's a lot of anger and uh, it's a really, really heavy little novella. So pick that up. If you haven't read Abhorrent Siren yet, buy that, read that, and then read Abhorrent Faith. Uh, you could read Abhorrent Faith without reading Abhorrent Siren first, but I, th- I think that reading Abhorrent Siren first will be rewarding to the reading of Faith. Hell yes. Abhorrent Siren was a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Thank you. It's, it's certainly a book. <laughs> It's certainly a book in which things happen that make a lot of people uncomfortable. Well, that marks the end of our episode on Cursed Objects with special guest John Baltzberger. Tune in in February for our upcoming episode on non-shark animal attacks in horror with a special guest who is not only an awesome podcaster, writer, mama, but also a vet who's prepared to school us on some horror myths about doggy attacks and bird attacks. As always, thanks for listening and follow us at horrorhangover underscore.